All right, you can turn to Romans. We're back in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1. So I noticed a couple years ago, I started seeing teenagers, particularly young teenage girls, wearing shirts that identified one of two teams that they belonged to. You know what I'm talking about? It's a Team Edward and Team Jacob phenomenon. I, I didn't have a clue what this meant. <laughs> no idea what was going on here. So I had to go ask my wife what this is about because she is much more in touch with culture than I am. And she told me, well, this is all about the Twilight series. And, and these shirts, <laughs> and these shirts identify which of the two male lead characters, Edward or Jacob, that the wearer identifies with. Uh, they identify who the wearer thinks that Bella, the main character, should choose. And, and actually, if you want to be accurate, they identify who the wearer would choose if she got to replace Bella in the movies. That's ultimately what it's about. It's about their devotion to one of these two characters. Now, um, I'm, I'm a 35-year-old guy. And so I'm going to be the first to admit I am not the target audience of the Twilight series. But uh, this whole devotion to these two characters, it, it really confused me. And, and here's why. First of all, Edward and Jacob, um, they don't exist. They're, they're fictional characters. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and even if you exist, you understand, even if the people exist, they couldn't exist because they're a vampire and a werewolf and there's no such thing. So um, that's the first reason I didn't get it. But here's even the deeper thing. This is really what confused me. Um, even if they existed, do you understand what it means when you say that Edward is a vampire? And I've done some research. Uh, apparently in the books, he does not kill people. Good for him. That's great. Um, but he's a vampire. And all the other legends of English literature, vampires, those are members of a cursed race of supernaturally strong monsters that terrify the human race. That's who you love? Um, and Jacob, he's a werewolf. That's another supernaturally strong monster who terrifies the human race. Vampires and werewolves. Those are the things of our nightmares. How did they all of a sudden become most eligible bachelors? I, I couldn't follow that. That didn't make sense to me. Now, I'm sure I have angered some of you. There's a lot of Twilight fans out there. If you are frustrated, if you're angry, if you're convinced that I don't understand this thing, that's fine. Just send me an email. You can email it to jasonweezapoppy at grace-bible.org. I promise it will get prompt attention. Now... All joking aside, my, my goal is not in any way to disparage the Twilight series. That's not at all what this is about. My goal is simply to say, if you are going to devote yourself to someone, if you're going to wear their t-shirt, if you're going to commit yourself to someone, then probably at some point you should stop and ask yourself, does this person deserve my devotion? Does this person merit my commitment to them? Are they the big deal that I'm making them out to be? If I'm going to be on their team and wear my t-shirt, do they deserve that kind of devotion? Now, that's not just a question for Twilight fans. That's a question for all of us. We are here this morning because we have committed ourselves to Jesus. We're on Team Jesus. We've committed our lives to him. And we do a lot more than just wear a Team Jesus t-shirt. We give him everything. We give him our money. We give him our love. We give him our obedience. We give him our gifts and our time. We've committed everything to Jesus. Does that devotion make sense? Is that devotion reasonable? Does Jesus deserve our whole and entire commitment? That's the question we want to ask this morning. In the eyes of much of the world, the answer would be no. In the eyes of most of our society, our complete devotion to this guy named Jesus makes about as much sense as people's devotion to Edward or Jacob. 
A number of years ago, I was walking into an Urban Outfitters and I saw this little toy up on the shelf. This is action figure Jesus. Probably can't read it. He comes with posable arms in smooth gliding motion. A toy with which you can entertain your friends. That's Urban Outfitters Jesus. He is action figure Jesus. Um, Or maybe you've seen this few years ago on uh, one of the most, actually the longest running animated TV series out there. This is Simpsons Jesus, the Jesus according to the Simpsons. He is a weak, pretty sad, somewhat pathetic figure in the minds of the creators of Simpsons. And actually uh, their Jesus is better than the Jesus of most of the academic world. The Jesus of most of academia either doesn't exist or he was simply a charismatic teacher who was grossly misunderstood by his followers. Now, if that is Jesus, then does he deserve our devotion? No. If that's Jesus, then we're making fools of ourselves following a guy like that. He doesn't deserve our devotion. He doesn't deserve anything from us if that's Jesus. So we better get this thing straight. We better ask ourselves, who exactly is this guy named Jesus? And why does he deserve our devotion? Is it reasonable to commit our entire lives to him? That's where we're going this morning. Look with me, chapter one of the book of Romans. We're gonna actually go back to the first verse, Romans one through seven. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Romans is actually a letter. I don't know if you were aware of that. It's actually a letter, and like all letters, it begins with a greeting. It tells you who wrote it, Paul, and who it's to, the believers in Rome. But Paul doesn't waste any space in any of his letters. So right here in the greeting, he, he packs it full of theology. He packs it full of biblical truths about the gospel. That's the subject we studied last week in verses 16 and 17. Romans is all about the gospel, God's good news of salvation to everyone who will simply believe. That's what Paul focused on last week. It's what he's going to focus on in this passage as well. This passage is all about the gospel and particularly it's about the person of the gospel. The good news of God's salvation is all about a person. Verse three, the gospel concerning his son. The gospel's all about Jesus, the son of God. That's what Paul wants us to focus on this morning is Jesus. Actually, Jesus is mentioned either by name or by title seven times in these seven verses. It's all about Jesus. That's what we're looking at this morning. Paul has a great deal to tell us about Jesus. Paul wants us to understand why Jesus is such a big deal. He wants us to understand what's so great about Jesus. And he's going to tell us, he's going to answer this question. He's going to tell us what's so great about Jesus by giving us four titles for Jesus. That's actually what you find here in the passage. Four titles that Paul gives us for the person of Jesus. And each of these titles flows out of the Old Testament. As you'll see this morning, you cannot understand the book of Romans, nor can you understand the person of Jesus if you don't know your Old Testament. 
because it's all built on the Old Testament. So this morning we're going to look at these four Old Testament titles that are given to Jesus to understand why is Jesus such a big deal? Does he deserve our devotion? Paul says yes, and here's why. Let's jump right in. Title number one, Paul says Jesus is worthy of our devotion because Jesus is the Christ. Right there at the beginning, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, for most of us, when we hear Christ, we, we're thinking Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ, like Blake Jennings. It's, it's just the last name of Jesus, but actually it's not. Christ is not a name. It's, it's a title. It's a Greek title, a Greek translation of, of a Hebrew title, the word Messiah. You see that in, in the book of John, John chapter 1. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is translated the Christ. This Hebrew word, Messiah, it's a a word you find often in the Old Testament. It was a common title in the Old Testament. There were lots of Messiahs in the Old Testament. Messiah is simply one who is anointed by God for a specific task. Usually anointed with, with oil. They would pour olive oil over this guy's head. The most common guys anointed as messiahs in the Old Testament are, are priests and kings. Each of them are chosen or anointed by God to lead the nation of Israel. So messiah, it means anointed one, one chosen by God to lead his people, priests and kings. Now, unfortunately, as the Old Testament progresses, we see that all of God's Old Testament messiahs blow it. The the Old Testament messiahs, the priests and kings of the Old Testament, they blow it. They fail to lead the people closer to God. In fact, they lead the people away from God into idolatry. And as a result of idolatry, God brings judgment against the nation of Israel. He leads them into exile. He takes away their land. He takes them into foreign occupation. The, The northern kingdom of Israel is exiled by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah is exiled by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And in the midst of that exile, the Jews are crushed. The exile was was cataclysmic for the Jewish people. They lost their nation. They lost their land. All their cities are destroyed. They've lost their freedom. They've lost all hope. They feel like life is gone for them. Like life is meaningless and hopeless. That's where the the prophets in the Old Testament close. This, This hopeless time of exile. And in the midst of that dark, depressing hopelessness, God shows up. God gives them hope. God gives them a promise. He says, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to send you one more Messiah, one ultimate anointed man who will bring the deliverance you crave. We read about that actually in the book of Daniel. Daniel writing in the midst of the Babylonian exile, God speaks to Daniel about this ultimate Messiah who would come and set all things right. And so Daniel, he is, he's crying out to God. He's saying, God, we, we blew it. We were unfaithful to you. God, please come deliver us. God, please rescue us. And God sends a message. Daniel, I'm going to deliver you. Here are the details. Daniel 9, starting in verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, that is Israel, and your holy city, that is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. What God is saying to Daniel is, Daniel, there is an event coming in the future where I'm going to fix everything that is wrong in your life. I am going to bring complete restoration, healing deliverance to you and your people. (laughs) 
I'm going to bring sin to an end. You'll never sin again. I'm going to bring punishment to an end. Your punishment for the sins of your past will be nothing but a distant memory. I will lead in perfect, everlasting righteousness. Everything will be right about you and about the world. I'm going to make all things right, and I'm going to do it through a special person. Through a particular person, verse 25, so you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. God is going to bring about complete and final restoration. He's going to make all things right through this ultimate Messiah, Messiah the Prince. And God actually tells Daniel, Daniel, I'm going to give you the timing. I'm going to tell you when to expect the arrival of my ultimate Messiah. And in the timing here, it's a little hard to follow. It's prophetic language. You have to get into the context and wrestle with it. When Daniel says weeks, he means groups of seven years. Okay, so 62 plus seven weeks equals 69 groups of seven years. When you add all this up, when you do the math... God mentions to Daniel a particular moment, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree was issued by the Persian kingdom in 444 BC. And then you add up 69 times seven years, that's 483 years. You add all that together and you get 33 AD. On the dot, God told Daniel centuries ahead of time that 33 AD, my Messiah is going to arrive. My ultimate anointed one, Messiah the Prince, will be there 33 AD. Now, that's exactly when Jesus was there. When Jesus showed up, we need to realize when Jesus showed up, it was not a surprise to the Jewish people. They knew the Messiah was coming. God had promised them around 33 AD, Messiah is coming. Be ready. In fact, when Jesus showed up to the nation of Israel, they were consumed by Messiah fever. They were looking everywhere for Messiahs. So Jesus shows up to these people in the fulfillment of God's promise. And and what Paul wants us to understand, when he says that Jesus is Messiah, that's incredibly significant in the mind of a Jew. He is saying, Jesus, he is the guy. He's this guy. The guy you have been waiting 600 years for. God's ultimate Messiah who is going to make all things right who is going to deliver you and restore you and redeem you from your sin and its consequences. This is the guy. The entire nation of Israel had pinned all of their hopes, all of their dreams in life upon the arrival of the Messiah. That was everything to them. That was all of their hopes, all of their dreams wrapped up in this one man called Messiah. So when Paul says Jesus is Messiah, it's a huge deal. You cannot overstate the importance of the Messiah in the mind of a Jew. It was huge to call Jesus Messiah, to call Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it's it's not for us. That title Christ, it's it's lost its gravity, its its meaning for us. For most of us, it's just Jesus' last name. For a lot of people, it's, it's just a curse word to throw out when you're angry. That term is so significant. It is the summation of all the promises of the Old Testament. I would encourage you, this is something I'm trying to do in my own devotional life. Because the word Christ, when I see it, I just roll right over it. I don't think about it. I'm forcing myself, when I come across the word Christ in Scripture, to change it to Messiah in my head. Because it is the word Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. It's the same word. Just change it to the word Messiah. Because Messiah is fresh to me. When I see Jesus, Messiah... Messiah Jesus, it reminds me, this is in his last name. This is a huge thing. This is telling me that Jesus is the guy who the world waited centuries for. 
the ultimate anointed one of God who will make all the world right. When I pray to God, I'm trying to encourage myself instead of praying in the name of Jesus Christ, pray in the name of Messiah Jesus to keep that fresh, to remind me this title is incredibly significant. It tells me that Jesus is a fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. That's the first reason that Jesus deserves our devotion, because he is Messiah. Second title that Paul gives us for Messiah Jesus is Descendant of David. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, David, this is King David from the Old Testament. Paul's not the only one to talk about Jesus' lineage, his family tree. Actually, it's popular in the New Testament to give Jesus' genealogy. That's actually where your New Testament begins. I don't know if you've ever noticed. First book of the New Testament is Matthew, and first verse of Matthew is Jesus' genealogy. Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The authors of the New Testament seem to be completely consumed by Jesus' genealogy. They're so interested in it. Why is that? It should be a little odd to us. If I introduce myself to you, I don't tell you who my great-great-granddad was because you don't care. Why would my genealogy matter to you? It doesn't. But actually, Jesus' genealogy matters greatly to us because of a promise made in the Old Testament. A promise that goes back to the book of 2 Samuel 7, one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. God shows up to a king named David and says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. When God shows up to King David and he says, David, I've got a gracious eternal promise for you. I'm going to give you the rights to rule over the nation of Israel, my people, for all eternity. Your descendants will be the only ones who can rightfully be called kings of Israel. From that point forward, it was only David's kids who could be kings of Israel. Anyone else was unqualified. And so when Paul says that Jesus is descendant of David, first and foremost, he means Jesus qualifies to be king. He qualifies to be king of God's people. But Paul means actually something even more than just king of Israel. He means something more because of what happens later in the Old Testament. As we head into those dark days of the exile, the throne goes empty. Exile, the nation is destroyed. The nation is led away. They can't have a king. They have no king on the Davidic throne for centuries. And in the midst of that hopelessness, in the midst of that oppression by Gentile powers, God shows up and he makes a promise. He promises to them in the book of Isaiah. Actually, Isaiah is an incredibly significant book if you want to understand Romans. That's why we covered it last spring. You can't understand Romans unless you know Isaiah. Because Isaiah is a foundation that Romans is built upon. It's built upon the promises made in Isaiah. God says in Isaiah chapter 9, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What God is saying through Isaiah 
is that in the midst of exile, there is no king on the throne. What is God going to do? God promises, I'm going to send a new king. A new king who is a son of David. He is sitting on David's throne. This king will rule over Israel, but he won't just rule over Israel. Because there will be no limit to the growth of his authority. He will rule over the entire earth. I'm sending a son of David who will rule the entire earth. And he won't just rule the earth for a lifetime. He will rule the earth forever. For all eternity, he will rule over my creation. And his rule will be characterized by peace by righteousness, by justice. He will be the one who will finally make the entire world right. When he is ruling, all the world will be righteous and at peace. So when Paul says that Jesus is a descendant of David, he's not just saying that Jesus is king of Israel. He is saying that Jesus is the eternal king, the king of kings, ruler of all the earth, who is once and for all going to make all of the world right. Descendant of David, king of kings over the entire earth in fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. That's Jesus. He is son of David. Now, that passage, Isaiah 9, actually prepares us for the next title. As great as Messiah and descendant of David are, the next title is even better. It's it's out of the ballpark compared to the others. Next title, Paul says, Jesus is son of God in power. Look at verse four, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And I'm wrapping all that together with power or in power is actually part of the name here. If you want to bracket it all together, Paul is saying Jesus is son of God in power. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is son of God in power? Let's start with just the first part of that. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the son of God? Again, we've we've got to go back to the Old Testament. That is an Old Testament title. Early in the Old Testament, in the life of David, as he writes the Psalms, son of God simply meant king of Israel. It referred to a position in the nation, king over the nation. Psalm chapter two, verses six and seven. This is God speaking. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then the Davidic king, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is actually really significant to the, to the Israelites. This was their coronation song. When they crowned a new king, they sang to themselves Psalm chapter 2. They They said to one another, this is our king. God has declared he is the son of God. They called their king son of God because the king of Israel represented the people to God and God to the people. He was the intermediator, the mediator between God and his people. So early in the Old Testament, son of God just means king, king of Israel. But then the title grows. It becomes more significant as the Old Testament progresses till we get to Isaiah, the passage we just read from chapter nine. This Davidic king, what was he called back in verse six? Mighty God, eternal father. And those aren't words you use of a human king. That's referring not just to Jesus's position, but Jesus's nature. He is son of God, not just as king of Israel, but as God himself. He is God in human flesh, a child who is also God. Jesus is son of God in both senses. He's king over Israel and he is eternal God. Jesus did not begin to exist on that first Christmas morning when he was born. 
No, he, he has eternally been son of God. He is the pre-existent, eternal, infinite God who on that Christmas morning became or took upon himself human flesh. He added to his divinity humanity. He has always been the son of God. So Jesus is king and Jesus is God himself. And yet Paul wants us to understand Jesus is something even more than this because he is not just son of God. He is son of God in power. Son of God in power as declared or better as appointed by the resurrection. At the moment of the resurrection, Jesus was appointed by God the father to be son of God in power. Now, what's going on there? Uh, Leave your finger in Romans and turn to Philippians 2. The passage we heard earlier as we were worshiping, Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus becomes the son of God in power at the resurrection? Well, to understand that, you have to first ask yourself, what did Jesus' life look like? Before the resurrection, how would you describe the life of Jesus when he lived on earth? Well, it was a pretty humble life. He may have been king by position, but he didn't look like a king. He didn't have the wealth of a king. He was born in a stable. He he didn't have the armies of a king. He didn't have the respect of a king. He was a humble servant when he first came to earth. That's where Philippians 2 verse 5 starts. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus' life look like? It looked like the life of a servant, characterized by humility and sacrifice. But all of that changed at the moment of the resurrection. At the moment of the resurrection, Jesus left humility, servanthood behind. Something changed. The moment of the resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. He was exalted by God. That's where the passage goes next. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the resurrection, Jesus ceased being a humble servant and became the conquering king, the Lord of all. I want you to ask yourself, if you were to see Jesus right now, right this moment, what would you see? If you were looking at Jesus right now, what would you see? Let me give you the answer by reading to you from the book of Revelation. John gets that privilege. John, the author of Revelation, he gets to see Jesus as he is right now. Let me read you what he sees. Chapter 1. I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
Then towards the end of the book, Revelation 19, John describes what it will look like when Jesus shows up on earth. Starting in verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Then in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. What would it look like if you were to see Jesus right now? Well, first off, I don't think you could actually look at him. I don't think you could hold your eyes open because the sight would so overwhelm you. But if somehow you could do it, if somehow you could look at Jesus, what you would see is a perfect man who shines brighter than the sun, who is glorious and splendid. He looks like metal that is on fire. His eyes are aflame. And he is surrounded by the armies of heaven and he wears a robe dipped in blood. And out of his mouth comes a sword with which he decimates his enemies. That's a metaphor for his speech. Jesus doesn't have to wield a sword. He speaks and everyone dies. That's Jesus now. He's not a humble servant anymore. He's the conquering king. That's why I feel sorry for whoever invented action figure Jesus or Simpsons Jesus. Because one day they're going to have to stand before Revelation Jesus. And I don't think that's going to be a comfortable moment for them. They're going to see who Jesus really is. I pray that before that day they will come to recognize Jesus is son of God in power. He is almighty. He is crowned with glory and honor and authority. He is awesome. If we were to stand before Jesus right now, we would do exactly what John does. What did he do in chapter one? He fell on his knees in terror like a dead man before Jesus because Jesus is son of God in power. That's very similar to the final title that Paul uses. Jesus is son of God in power. He is Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord is a a title used of God himself throughout the Old Testament. It carries authority. Lord means that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is master over all the universe. He owns it all. It all reports to him. It all belongs to him. But this title is different than the others because this title is personal. Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is not just master and owner of the universe. He is my master. He is your master. He owns us. He has claim to our lives because he is our Lord. What that means is that that your boss, your spouse, your parents, your kids, none of them hold claim over you like Jesus does. He is your absolute master. He owns and has mastery, sovereignty over every facet of your life. I love how Abraham Kuyper put it. I think this is the best summary of the lordship of Jesus I've ever seen. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus says, mine, to every part of our lives because he is Lord. He is our Lord, our master, our owner. He deserves our complete devotion. He demands our complete devotion because he is Lord. Lord of all. So let's go back to the question we started with. Does Jesus deserve the devotion we give him? Does he deserve our commitment? Paul's answer is yes, he does. And and here's why. Jesus deserves our 
commitment. He deserves our devotion because first and foremost, he's our Messiah. He's the one whom God promised centuries and centuries ago. The one whom God promised would fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. And he deserves our devotion because he is descendant of David. He is king of kings who will rule over the entire earth for all of eternity and will make all things right. He will bring peace and righteousness and the justice that we crave to see on earth. And he deserves our devotion because he is son of God in power. He is revelation Jesus, Jesus of power and might and authority. And he deserves our devotion because he is Lord, Lord and master, not just of the universe, but of our lives. Jesus deserves our devotion. He deserves our devotion because even though he is all of these things, he freely chose to die for us. That's what's really remarkable about all this. This is the guy who died for you. This is the guy. You don't get any better titles than that. He deserves nothing but worship and praise and honor. And yet he freely chose to give it all for us. I think probably earlier this morning, I was a little little too hard on fans of the Twilight series. Um, I've done a little research. I always try to research stuff before I use an illustration. And, And I did find part of the reason why girls were devoting themselves to Edward and Jacob is in the books, both characters, both Edward and Jacob are presented as men who are incredibly strong, unflinchingly good, and unhesitatingly faithful to the person they love. Those are actually really good things. If you're looking for someone to devote your life to, those are good things to look for and those things are most fully realized in Jesus. He is strong. He is uncomprehensively strong. He is infinitely strong. The mere word from his mouth can fling worlds into existence or crush millions of his enemies. No one is as strong as Jesus. And he is unhesitatingly good. He is perfectly good. Throughout his entire life, he did nothing but that which is right and true and faithful and just. He is always perfectly good. And he is absolutely faithful to those he loves. To those Jesus loves, he is incredibly faithful. He is so faithful that he willingly left the beauty and bliss of heaven to walk among us to take upon himself the the limiting, painful, suffering flesh of humanity. And then even though he lived a perfect life, he willingly took our sins upon himself and went up to the cross on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf because of his love, because he is infinitely faithful to those he loves, even though we are not faithful to him. Out of grace and mercy, out of faithful love, Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. There has never been and will never be a greater act of love in all of human history than what this one did for us. That's why he deserves our complete devotion. Our complete devotion. So let me ask you, if you're here this morning, have you devoted yourself to Jesus? Now I'm talking more than just wearing a Team Jesus t-shirt. Have you devoted your whole life to Jesus? Is everything you say and everything you do always uttering, I'm part of Team Jesus. I'm loyal to Jesus. I'm devoted to my Messiah, who is the King of Kings, who is the Son of God in power and Lord of all the universe. I devote my life to him. Can you say that? Now, devotion to Jesus, it begins simply with faith, simply with belief. Belief that Jesus, the eternal son of God, really did take your sins upon himself and die on the cross in your place. And that then God raised him from the dead, conquering sin and death and Satan on your behalf. 
And you can have eternal life with God. You can belong to Jesus for all eternity if you simply believe. Simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. If there is anything keeping you back from believing that good news, an intellectual objection or something in your history, or you just can't believe it's that free, that good, please come talk to someone here this morning. We, we would love to introduce you to our Messiah. And if you have believed, if you have trusted in Jesus, and the question before you is, have you devoted every square inch of your life to him? I, I love Kuiper's words. Have you given every square inch of yourself to him? Because that's what he deserves and that's what he demands. He is Lord of all. Will you give him your entire life or are you holding back? Is there some square inch of your life, some sin, something that you know would not please your Lord that you're just not willing to give up? Or maybe some hole in your life, something that that you know Jesus wants you to do, but you're just not willing to, you're not willing to give that to him. This morning, let it be the time when you offer every square inch of your life completely to Jesus because he's worthy of it. He deserves it. Will you give your life completely, unhesitatingly to him? Let's pray for his help to do exactly that. Lord Jesus, this morning, in joy and in reverence, we confess that you are our Messiah. You are the one that the whole world waited for. You are the one who will fulfill all of the promises of God. You are the one who will fix everything that is wrong with this planet. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our Messiah. And we confess that you are the descendant of David. You are king of kings who will rule over all the earth. How we look forward to that day, Jesus, when you come back to the throne of David on earth and begin to rule over all of the planet for all of time. And Jesus, we confess that you are son of God in power. You are the pre-existent, eternal son of God who has been crowned with infinite authority and majesty and power. Lord Jesus, we confess that if you showed up right now, we would be absolutely on our knees in fear before you because you are so great and so mighty. And Jesus, we confess that you are Lord. You are Lord of the entire universe and, and you are Lord of each one of our lives. Jesus, we are, we're so sorry that so often we hold back our lives from you. You deserve every square inch of our lives. Please, Jesus, help us to give you everything. And Heavenly Father, we turn to you and, and first and foremost, we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that you've loved us so much that you sent him to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And Father, we join together to pray for anyone here who has not yet believed that good news, who has not yet been, uh, become a part of your family through faith in Jesus. Please help them right now, Lord. Please clear away the obstacles, clear away the distraction, clear away the obstacles that, that keep them from believing that Jesus really did die for their sins and rise from the dead and that they can have eternal life simply through faith. Please let this be the moment of their salvation, Lord. And for the rest of us who, who have benefited from Jesus' salvation, please help us to give him everything. Please convict us through your spirit, Lord. You know where every one of us is this morning. You know what we are holding back from Jesus, Lord. We pray that you would put your finger on that thing, that you would make it uncomfortable to us, that you would move us and make us to hand that over to Jesus, to offer it to him because he is Lord. Please, Lord, do whatever it takes in our lives to make us people who are pleasing in your sight, to make us people who are lights for Jesus Christ, who are absolutely, completely devoted to him because he deserves and demands that kind of devotion. Thank you for your son, Jesus. 
our Messiah, King of kings, Son of God in power, Lord of all, we pray in his name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.